Are you an outdoorsy type? Do you like being out in nature, hiking and camping? How about a fun trip into the sub-zero temperatures in the Ural Mountains of northern Russia? What could possibly go wrong? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan, a decidedly indoorsy type. Unless there's a chair, a serene lake, and a cooler with chilled Chardonnay, I'll go ahead and skip the camping trip. True, there will never be a mountain pass named after me, but the chances that I'll die a gruesome and completely mystifying death on a snow-covered mountain are relatively low. This week, the Datlov Pass, the man it was named for and his group of hiker friends who died there, and why we're still talking about it 60 years later. Just a quick note before we dive in. The names of the people involved in this story are Russian. And while it's true that my grandfather was from the USSR, he died before I was born, and I never learned any of the languages from the Soviet Empire. That said, I researched pronunciations and will do my best. I beg you, forgive me my shitty New York City public school education, and don't come for me on Twitter. In late January 1959, ten intrepid souls, mostly students in their 20s at the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Russia, set out for the Otorten mountain range in the northern Ural Mountains of Russia. When I first heard of this story, I assumed this was a group of scientists or military people doing some kind of official mountainy type business, collecting ice samples or whatever people do up in the mountains, because why else would someone trek around in the freezing mountains of northern anywhere? The kids in this group, and a kid, by the way, is anyone under the age of 30, were studying science at Polytech, but like nuclear physics and engineering, nothing that would require dangerous treks into the mountains. The leader of the group, Igor Dyatlov, was a radio engineering student. The group was taking this trip to prep for an even more strenuous trip to the Arctic. So it was a training mission for whatever official thing they had to do in the Arctic, right? I searched and searched to try to find out what important mission these kids had in the Arctic, but they didn't have anything official to do in the Arctic. They weren't penguin scientists or iceberg researchers. They didn't even seem to have a passing interest in polar bears. They literally just wanted to go to the end of the Earth for shits and giggles. Turns out these kids actually liked hiking in sub-zero conditions. No judgment. Everyone has their own idea of what constitutes a fun vacation. But there isn't enough money in the world to get me onto a snow-covered mountain unless I'm sitting in a cabin in front of a cozy fire, sipping spiked hot chocolate under four blankets. Humans will never cease to amaze me. The day before the trip began, one of the students in the group, Yuri Yudin, had to drop out because his sciatic nerve was acting up. I'm guessing he saw the mountain they were about to climb and was like, um, hey, yeah, so my sciatic nerve, that's a thing, right, hurts. Oh, darn it, I was really looking forward to this pointless, arduous, freezing trip. Take pictures for me. Bye. That was my Russian impression. So, one person down on January 28, 1959, the group set out up the mountain. 
No one was immediately worried when the group didn't return by February 12th, as expected. It's not uncommon for these kinds of expeditions to run a few days over, what with the whole chaos of nature and all. But when a week passed and no one had heard from the group, people started to worry. Almost exactly a month after the group set out, 14 days after the group was expected to have returned, a rescue party made up of other students from Polytech as well as some military and police, following the trail the original group of nine was planning on hiking, came upon a tent half buried in the snow. When they dug the tent out, they found hiking boots, backpacks, and gear stored neatly, and a plate of pork fat sliced up as though it was about to be eaten. The tent had been slashed open from the inside. Anyone who has ever tried to get out of a tent in the dark knows how impossible it is to find the tiny zipper. But apparently, tents back then had buttons rather than zippers. So, as elusive as that tiny zipper might be, imagine having to fumble with a bunch of old-timey buttons. Whoever had been in there obviously wanted to get out in a hurry. And then they noticed the footprints frozen in the snow. Eight or nine people had scattered in all directions and then reassembled and fled downhill, some apparently wearing only one boot, some in socks, and some barefoot. Temperatures in the area had bottomed out around 20 degrees Celsius, or 4 degrees American. I mean Fahrenheit. What on earth would make a group of experienced hikers run out into the snow and down a mountain barefoot in sub-zero weather? The footprints led away from the campsite and apparently disappeared about almost a mile down. And there, at the edge of the forest, were the bodies of Georgi Krivonoshenko and Yura Durashenko huddled at the base of a massive pine tree. They were both barefoot and in their underwear. Their hands and feet were mysteriously a reddish-brown, not their normal color. Yura had, for some reason, bitten off a piece of his own knuckle. Let's not linger on that. As far as the rescue team could figure out, they had built a small campfire, the charred remains of which still sat nearby. Scattered around them were broken branches that seemed to come from as high as 16 feet up the tree. To the team, this was evidence that one of the hikers had tried climbing the tree, possibly to look for their tent or breaking off branches for firewood. Later, it was determined that two people had climbed the tree. How did they figure this out, you ask? Their skin was left behind in the bark. You know that scene in Silence of the Lambs where Catherine is at the bottom of the well in Buffalo Bill's basement of horrors, and as the light from the flashlight on the bucket ascends back up after she puts the lotion in the basket, she sees a fingernail embedded in the side of the well? That's all I could picture after reading about the human skin embedded in the tree bark. Also, Georgie and Yura's palms were pretty much stripped of their skin. The next body they found was that of Igor Dyadlov, the leader of the expedition. Dressed but shoeless, he laid face up in the snow, clutching a birch branch. His other arm was draped over his face as though shielding it from something. Near Igor was the body of Zineda Kolmogorova. I don't know how dressed or undressed she was, but she had a long red bruise on her torso that apparently looked like it came from being hit by a baton. 
The way her body was laid in the snow, the rescuers thought she may have been trying to get back up the mountain to their camp. Another member of the hiking group, Rustam Slobodin, was found dead nearby with a fractured skull. Despite Rustam being properly dressed for an apparently unexpected foray out into the snow, long sleeve undershirt, under a sweater, two pairs of pants, and four pairs of socks, his cause of death was determined to be hypothermia, which means A, the skull fracture was a completely befuddling piece of the puzzle, and B, he died of hypothermia with all those clothes on. Imagine how much worse it was for the people who were practically naked. Where the other four members of the original expedition were, no one knew. It would be another three months before the other four members of Igor's team were found. Once the snow had melted, the bodies of Nikolai Thibault Brignol, Alexander Kolovetov, Lyudmila Dobonina, and Simon Zolotyarov were found, fully clothed in a ravine near where the first five bodies had been found. Nikolai's skull, like Rustam's, was fractured. Alexander had a bizarre wound behind one ear, and his neck was twisted at an odd angle. Simone and Ludmilla had both suffered extreme internal injuries, including shattered ribs. The amount of damage to their insides indicated blows that were the equivalent of a car crash. The coroner who found the injuries said they could not have been caused by another person. Despite the severity of their injuries, there was no bruising or damage to the soft tissue. It's like peeling a perfect-looking orange and finding the insides were somehow crushed. Except, that is, for their eyeballs, which were missing. Ludmilla's mouth was open in what looked like a silent scream. When they examined her more closely, however, they discovered her tongue was missing. It had been pulled completely out of her throat. Some of the clothes the hikers had been wearing were tested and contained high levels of radiation, and family members of the victims later claimed that at least five of the hikers had a strange reddish-orange tint to their skin and that their hair had lost its color, becoming gray. So what the hell happened on that mountain? What scared a group of experienced hikers so much that they fled into the dark of night practically naked in freezing conditions and ended up dead, some with inexplicable injuries. According to diary entries and photos developed from rolls of film found at the hikers' abandoned campsite, the group made camp around 5 p.m. on February 2nd. The spot they chose for camp was a bit strange. Less than a mile away, they would have found a much safer spot where they would have been protected from the elements. One theory for why they picked this more dangerous location is that it would be good practice for times when there wasn't a more optimal camping site within reach. But I don't know. Maybe practice somewhere else and not in the dead of winter in Siberia? To be fair, I guess it's always the dead of winter in Siberia, but there must be slightly less deads of winter than February, right? Maybe they had practiced on a kitty hill at some point. Maybe they had leveled up and this was the next step. Maybe they miscalculated. 
Maybe people weren't meant to sleep outside on snow-covered mountains. And yes, I know plenty of people have slept outside on snow-covered mountains over the course of human history, but those people didn't start out in heated houses, you know? Judging from the photos, everyone in the group looked healthy and in good spirits. At their autopsy, the contents of their stomachs showed they had eaten dinner shortly after making camp, so the sliced pork fat must have been a little after-dinner snack. Though I don't know how they could nail down what time of day someone ate after the person had been dead in the snow for months, but as we all know, I'm no expert on the contents of dead people's stomachs. The chances that any of the nine members of the group left the tent in their underwear are slim. Even if they were in a hurry, it would have already been dark by the time they ate, and if they weren't in their hiking clothes, they were most likely in their thermal underwear that they would have slept in. It's possible that this is the underwear the first few victims were found in, and of course, even thermal underwear wouldn't have been enough to keep them from freezing to death. It's also likely that the bodies found with ample clothing on had taken those clothes off their dead cohorts. Ludmilla's foot was wrapped in wool from Georgie's pants, and Semyon was wearing Ludmilla's hat. Regardless of what state of dress they were in, it's obvious they fled in a hurry. No one slices open a tent for a potty break, you know? And at the very least, one would throw on a pair of boots if they could have. And so, of course, as we always do with a mystery, everyone started theorizing and proclaiming with varying degrees of certainty what must have happened to those poor kids on that freezing night in the Ural Mountains. Despite it being clear that some, if not all, the victims died of hypothermia, the first theory of what happened to Igor Dyatlov and his group of eight was that they met their ends at the hands of members of the local Siberian tribe called the Mansi. In this scenario, the hikers had unknowingly wandered into Mansi territory and were escorted out, lethally. In order for this theory to make sense, some local Mansi would have scared the hikers out of their tent and chased them down the mountain and then, what, left five of them to try to make it back to camp, build a fire, and then die of hypothermia? Or were they too busy killing the other four in the ravine? The Mansi people are highly skilled hunters. If there's one thing I know about highly skilled hunters, it's that they're pretty well-versed with killing. They tend to be able to do it rather efficiently. Seems unlikely these highly skilled hunters just sort of haphazardly killed some randos all willy-nilly up and down a mountain. And how would humans create the kind of internal injuries Ludmilla and Semyon suffered without causing damage to the outside of their bodies? Magic? And what about their missing eyeballs and her missing tongue? If taking the eyeballs and tongues from their victims was some kind of ritualistic thing, why did they only take two sets of eyeballs and one tongue? Why not all of them? One theory was that Ludmilla's screams were so annoying that they ripped her tongue out to get her to stop. Ugh, women and their annoying screaming while they're being chased down and hunted and murdered. Am I right? Also, if the Mansi did manage to kill the four in the ravine, why not go back and finish off the other five instead of waiting for the elements to take them? 
Though I'm in a bet that blunt force trauma is a less painful way to go than freezing to death. Trust me, I grew up in New York City. I know cold. So maybe they were being intentionally cruel by letting them freeze to death? I mean, above and beyond the cruelness it takes to murder a bunch of people in the first place? Anyway. If this really was a killing over trespassing into the wrong territory, you'd think the people whose territory it was would sort of want to send a message, you know? Like pirates leaving a sign on their victims saying, All ye who enter here, beware! Or white guys with don't tread on me tattoos. They're not usually, like, subtle. I suppose it's possible some members of the Mansi tribe initially scared the hikers out of their tent, watched them run off, and let nature run its course, which, again, doesn't account for the incongruous injuries. Another theory posited in a 2015 book was that some Mansi people were tripping on mushrooms and, quote, went berserk on the hikers. Look, I don't know about you, but I've done mushrooms plenty of times, and I have never once gone berserk and killed someone. I have made plenty of other poor choices, but they were more of the, everyone is connected, therefore I can implicitly trust this stranger variety than the murder variety. Others think an avalanche struck, burying the group in the tent almost instantly, and please allow me, the couch potato who avoids snow at all costs, to tell you why I don't think it was an avalanche. First off, the avalanche would have had to cover but not crush the tent. This was a mid-century model group tent made of canvas and sticks. Not exactly the kind of design that could withstand hundreds of pounds of snow suddenly dropping on it. Nothing inside the tent was disturbed. So in this scenario, the space inside the tent is left unharmed, and for some reason the hikers don't bother to get dressed before slicing and digging their way out of the tent and the snow. They wouldn't have run out during the avalanche, so they would have at least had time to put shoes on. And then what? They run downhill? Why? I mean, I guess to try to outrun an avalanche? Also, as some have pointed out, avalanches tend to drag a lot of mountain detritus with them. Rocks, small trees, branches, etc. There was no sign that an avalanche had come through the area. Also, again, the avalanche doesn't explain the makeshift campfire down the mountain. Unless the group somehow heard the avalanche coming with enough time to rip their way out of the tent and run for their lives... I suppose in this scenario, the group might have found safety in the trees, and once the avalanche stopped, they could have tried to start a fire. Maybe the four found in the ravine weren't able to outrun the avalanche, got swept or knocked into the ravine, sustained weird internal injuries, and got buried in the snow and died. That wouldn't explain how they seem to have died after the folks found at the edge of the forest. That also wouldn't explain how or why they were wearing their friends' clothes. And that sure wouldn't explain the missing eyeballs and tongue. And sure, maybe scavenger animals took those parts, but again, why only those two people? And why only those parts? Also, and this is super gross, and I could be wrong, but scavenger animals don't usually rip a tongue out in its entirety. Like downing a whole meatloaf instead of eating it a slice at a time, you know? 
Russian authorities reopened the case in 2019 to try to finally put the questions to rest. In early 2021, they announced that the nine hikers most likely fell victim to a slab avalanche, which is, if you can picture it, sort of like a huge sheet of snow and ice falling off a slanted roof, only on a much larger scale. According to this official theory, three of the hikers were severely injured while inside the tent from the falling snow, and so the ones who weren't injured dragged them out in an attempt to rescue them. The reason some of them are practically naked? One of the stages of hypothermia is feeling like you're basically on fire. During this stage, it's not uncommon for freezing people to start paradoxically ripping off their clothes. I mean, okay. So at least three of the hikers suffered damage equivalent to those sustained in a car crash while inside the tent, where also somehow, miraculously, the plate of food and their gear and stuff was left essentially untouched. And then their less injured friends dragged them out of the tent, apparently leaving their footprints in the snow, but no drag marks, all the way down to the ravine, and then climbed out of the ravine, tried to climb a tree, lit a fire, then took off their clothes, which I guess mysteriously vanished since no one reported finding clothes lying around. You know that scene in Naked Gun where Leslie Nielsen stands in front of a massive shit show of an explosion yelling to a small crowd? Nothing to see here! Yeah, this is like that. And what about the radiation levels in the hikers' clothes? And the reported unnaturally tanned skin and suddenly gray hair? Some people think the most likely culprit was a secret military test gone wrong. Or possibly gone right? Lev Ivanov, the lead Soviet investigator on this case, noted another group of hikers 32 miles south of Igor and company reported seeing a series of orange spheres in the sky above the Ural Mountains that night. In his investigation, Ivanov learned that for a month and a half after this incident, lots of people in the area reported seeing these orange orbs. What were they? At this point, it's not really a secret that governments like to test weapons in places that are not necessarily devoid of living things and then afterward be like, oops, our bad. Like they'll wait until after people have been killed or lethally poisoned and then be like, we didn't realize there were so many people there. So, what if the USSR, at the height of the Cold War, was testing some kind of nuclear weapon in and around the mountains of Siberia because, like, who lives over there anyway? Spoiler alert, millions of indigenous people. Ivanov himself said it's possible that one of these orbs exploded close enough to the campsite that the force of it knocked some of them down, resulting in fractured skulls, for example. Radiation from such a blast might explain the tanned skin and radiated clothes. Of course, this would mean that the fragments of said explosion would have had to have been cleaned up before the search party found the dead hikers. And if the government was going to go so far as to try to cover up a weapons test, why wouldn't they go ahead and steal the bodies while they were at it? Lord knows the USSR did some gnarly shit to its own people in those years. 
no one would be that shocked if they disappeared nine students to cover their own asses. Others have suggested that the orbs may have been sonic weapons blasting infrasound that can cause dread or panic. I suppose panic could have caused the sudden fleeing from the tent, though one would think that all nine people wouldn't have panicked in exactly the same way. Like you'd think one of them would have been like, maybe we don't need to slash the tent open and run naked into the night. Unless the one hiker whose body was found fully dressed had gone out to pee, saw the orbs, and started screaming, causing the others to panic. Why he only wore one boot to leave the tent, I can't say. And again, why the other eight would intentionally destroy the tent in an attempt to flee the way they did just because their buddy was like, holy shit, what is that, is beyond me. For some reason, Ivanov, the lead Russian investigator, was ordered to label everything he found classified and put it away in a secret file. He was then transferred to a tiny town in Kazakhstan, which, you know, is slightly suspicious. According to Lucy Ash, in a piece she wrote for the BBC... Author Oleg Arkhipov, who wrote three books on this event, befriended Ivanov and gained access to the files he was supposed to have put away. And look, I have come to be very leery of third and fourth-hand accounts of events from decades ago. Even first-person accounts tend to grow and morph over time, so take this all with a healthy serving of skepticism. But after interviewing Oleg for the BBC, Lucy wrote... At the time of the students' deaths, many animals and birds were found dead, and local people were suddenly banned from using water from wells. They had to bring in water from elsewhere. And something else makes Oleg suspicious. In the autopsy reports, it says that fragments of the internal organs of the first five bodies were sent for chemical analysis. He unearthed a signed document stating the organs had been successfully delivered and were stored in a fridge. But as soon as the results were known, some people came to the laboratory and took the samples away, along with the paperwork. Nothing to see here, please! In all, some 75 different theories have been floated about what happened that night, including, of course, alien abduction. We all know it's not a mystery without an alien theory. And in truth, I didn't even get to the alien abduction theory in my research because I spent so much time trying to figure out how to debunk the avalanche theory. And you know, I think I've decided that aliens are generally disinterested in us. Despite what Hollywood may have us believe, I like to think that, generally speaking, aliens view us humans as an oddity that at most needs observing and at least can be ignored. If they have the technology to get close enough to us to cause the kind of mayhem that happened on the mountain pass that night, I would imagine they also have the technology to make us forget we ever saw them. I don't see them needing to chase us out of our tents, half-naked, screaming annoyingly into the frozen night. I don't see them being like, tee-hee-hee, let's take these eyeballs and that tongue. And sure, many agree there were those orange UFOs, but the consensus is that they're only identified to us non-VIP types and that the military knows exactly what they were. 
Then again, I do tend to give other living things way too much benefit of the doubt, despite repeated evidence that they don't deserve it. I trust you won't use that against me, dear stranger. I leave you with my favorite theory of what happened to those poor souls that night. Bigfoot, or rather her Russian cousin, the Yeti. When I first read about the branches broken from nearly 16 feet up in the tree, my first thought was of big feet and their alleged habit of breaking branches. And indeed, one of the photos developed from the rolls of film found in the abandoned tent shows a weird figure peeking out from behind the trees. And yes, this could be one of the hikers all bundled up, but I gotta say, from the other pictures of the hikers, they didn't really look like the bundled up types. To be clear, they also didn't look like the less run out naked types either, but all the pictures of them show their bare, smiling faces like near zero degree weather is just another Wednesday afternoon for them. The figure in the picture is covered head to toe, face and all. And sure, there's no reports of Yeti tracks in the snow, but you know, maybe their big giant clown feet act as natural snowshoes and just don't sink enough to leave an impression in the snow. Once again, this theory still doesn't really explain the missing eyeballs and tongue. Yetis and big feet aren't really known for their delicate hands, you know? I don't think they'd be particularly good at gingerly pulling out eyeballs. Tongues, on the other hand. You know, for my least favorite part about this story, I sure have mentioned it the most times. In the end, the stretch of the mountain on which these kids met their gruesome fate was renamed the Dyatlov Pass, after Igor Dyatlov, the intrepid leader of the group. Which, if the Russian government's updated official explanation for the disaster can be believed, is rather ironic. It was Igor's decision, after all, to camp in a spot that would leave the group vulnerable to the very avalanche that the Russian government wants us to believe eventually killed them. Then again, the failed military test cover-up pass just doesn't have quite the same ring. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. What would you do if you woke up one morning to find you had miraculous new talents? And what if your brain held the secret of unlimited human potential? What if all it took to get there was a major head injury? Strange abilities and miraculous talents. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please do help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 